You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. While you're at it, go ahead and ask the title of my sermon this morning. Get, get ready for this one. Is karma biblical? Is karma biblical? How many people think it is? Raise your hand. Oh, all right, good. Awesome. How many people, just, just to clarify, how many people who think, no, it's not biblical, put up your hand. Awesome. Very good, very good. We're about 99% in this room. Uh, so we are back in the Gospel of John series. We're starting chapter 9 now in the Gospel of John. It's always an accomplishment when we, whenever we finish a chapter in this Gospel. We've been going through this study for several years now, but glad that we're finally in chapter 9. or finished off chapter 8, and now we're in chapter 9. If you remember, John's purpose for this Gospel, why he wrote this book, is in John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We've been talking about how John writes this gospel with evangelistic intent. He wants his readers to believe the claims of Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and that so that they would believe and have life, salvation in Christ's name. He wants to legitimize Christ's claim as God by giving all this evidence, giving these stories in this, in this gospel so that people would believe. And our purpose for studying this text, studying this gospel, is really to see the supremacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to remember the sufficiency of Jesus as our Savior, what he did on the cross, and, and, and the life that he lived is enough for our salvation, and really to learn more about who our Savior is. Because as we've talked about in the past, oftentimes when we experience trials in this life, uh, times of hardship, it's always good to remember who our Savior is, who holds our future, who holds us in His purposes and His plans. And so the deeper we know our Savior, the deeper our comfort is when, when, when trials come in our life. Now, this passage in this morning, our passage this morning hits all the points of, of why we're studying this, this text. It's not, it doesn't just demonstrate uh, evidence as Jesus being the Christ or him having the power of God as the Son of God, equal to God, but it reminds us why the gospel of Jesus Christ is supreme over all other worldly philosophies and ideologies of man. It reminds us why Christ is enough for our salvation. And, and, and joyfully so. See, this passage deals with this ideology, this philosophy that has been, that was prevalent in Jesus' day, in ancient times, as well as our own. And that, and, and you know, as we've been saying, the Bible doesn't just tell us what happened, it tells us what always happens. There's nothing new in this world. And this prevalent ideology and philosophy in Jesus' day and our day is this idea or, or this concept of karma. The, the, where this idea that your lot in this life is determined by the good or the bad deeds that you commit or others commit around you. For example, if you have ever experienced bad things happen to you in your day-to-day -day life and you, and, you, and you thought, well, it's because, you know, I, I was rude to the waitress the other day and, and I didn't tip her well. And that's why my car broke down. 
Or, or if you're thinking, you know, my kids are acting up, right? And then your, your, your parents say, well, it's karma because you are a bad kid, right? Or maybe you're, you know, good things start to happen. You find a $20 bill on the ground and you're thinking, well, it's because I donated that $1 to charity at McDonald's, right? Or maybe you get a promotion at work and you think it's because karma, right? You put positive vibes out there. You do good and then good things come back to you. I mean, I know I have thought maybe in those terms before too or maybe still do sometimes. When I mess up, I automatically think, oh no, something bad's going to happen now. Or, or, something, or, or something bad happens already, and I'm thinking, you know, the tendency is for me to think it's because I did this the other day. I messed up. This is God punishing me. And this is essentially is what, or the mentality or the idea of what karma is. We, in fact, we see it plastered all around social media uh, in, in, in the, the public spaces, right? It's in, it's in the vocab of, of people. Instant karma videos are popular on on, uh, on, on YouTube, if you've ever seen those, whether it's good or bad karma, it's, it's in the language of today, and it was popular in Jesus' day, and it's also popular today. Now, mind you, in Jesus' day, the Jews wouldn't have called it karma, but we see the same principle in our text today, in the Jewish disciples, and their thinking. And Look at our passage again, verse 1 and 2. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Listen to this. Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his this man or his parents that he was born blind? Whose fault is it? Whose sin necessitated this man being born blind? Disciples ask this question as, as though if they're trying to be insightful, right? But See, in Jesus' day, the prevailing thought amongst Orthodox Jews was that suffering in this life is a result from our past sins, or or our present sins even, or our parents' sins, whether by punishment or simple cause and effect. There's a causation between uh, suffering and sin. If you sin, you end up suffering. And the disciples, this is what they concluded. They saw this blind man who was born blind, and they thought someone must have had sin, right? Someone, either his sin or his parents' sin. But it's interesting how Jesus replies. Look at verse 3. He says, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Again, that the works of God might be displayed in this blind man, that the glory of God would be revealed, the power of God would be revealed through this blind man. Now, mind you, what Jesus doesn't say here is that he doesn't deny that there is punishment and and there is consequences for sin. He doesn't deny that. Instead, he offers an alternative worldview on suffering rather than the simple cause and effect of karma or you do something bad, bad things happen to you, you do something good, good things happen to you. He offers a different, he offers an alternative outlook on suffering. Jesus is sort of pulling back the veil to show how even in our suffering, God has purposes, He has a plan, His his power remains. In fact, this entire miracle demonstrates how God is more powerful than any law of nature or even spiritual misconceptions like karma. (coughs) Excuse me. 
So the hope for us this morning is to show why this belief in karma is very unbiblical, as we all have already concluded, and in fact even contradicts biblical truths. Therefore, we, therefore it should not even be mentioned or even thought about in, uh, in and amongst uh, God's people. But in addition to that, I also want to present to you and show you God's character, our Savior's character how, over our suffering, how He acts in our suffering, how, it, how, how the way God deals with our suffering is completely different than any concept or notion of, of karma. How even in our hardships, He communicates grace to us. Now, the hope is that if you're going through a season of trial or suffering, you would look past the, the worldly conclusions of cause and effect, because I did this, this is happening. Or, or, or even, even oftentimes how that appears in, in our lives is the guilt and shame of our sins. And again, the hope here is that we would look past that and see the hand of our good God in the midst of our suffering. That we would be reminded of His plans and purposes for us, even in the midst of our suffering, that His love towards you, brothers and sisters, are, are, are far more greater than, than our failings and our shortcomings in this life. Also, to remind you that you're not alone in your sufferings. So before we break down our passage, I, I want to sort of discuss this idea of karma a little more and how it's not compatible with the biblical worldview, um, just so that we are very clear on it. And let's, let's start on sort of the origins of this. I, I, I don't want to make this into a world history class or a world religions class, right? But I, I did end up doing the, the research for us, did some readings on the origins of karma and that ideology, that philosophy, right? So that you don't have to engage with the doctrine of demons, right? Um, I, I've done that for you. Um, so this idea of karma, uh, if you don't already know, it's, its origins are founded in Hinduism, right? And which later on translates over to Buddhism. And the idea is that both believe that, uh, the, that karma, or rather the bad in this world, is a result from our sin, from our worldly desires. And if you do bad, you get bad things. You do good, you get good things. In Hindu, the, the idea of good, in their terms, is rituals and, and religious uh, activities and visiting shrines and uh, temples and whatnot. In Buddhism, their idea of doing good so that you can get good in your life is rather correct intent and having ethical actions or doing ethical actions. Now, in both cases, both required, uh, or, or, or rather, you need to have a good karma in your life in order to break free from a, what they call the cycle of reincarnation, right? Reincarnation. You do good, enough good, then you can be reincarnated into something good or something better in this life. You do bad, you get reincarnated into a... Uh, an ant or something, right, into something bad in this life. There's really a cause and effect that happens in their worldview, um, primarily for the next life. Now, what we see in the, sort of the Western idea of karma and sort of the New Age philosophy that's, again, prevailing on social media is that karma is more in lines with the Buddhist philosophy and mentality of doing good things so that you get good things, good rewards here in this life, and if you do bad things, you get bad things in this life. And it's less about reincarnation, less about trying to merit a better reincarnation, but again, 
more so everything in this life. Um, your good deeds, you get good things. Bad deeds, you get bad things. And uh, I, I mentioned earlier, sometimes you watch on YouTube uh, or, or social media these instant karma videos where uh, some, you, know, you see a guy cut off a, a, an individual on the road while they're driving, and next thing you know, this person gets into a car, car accident, and you know, people laugh about these things. Um, but it's, again, just this mentality that's prevailing in our culture that somehow this is you know, cause and effect in, in this world. Bad things equal, or you do bad things, bad things happen to you. You do good things, good things happen. Now, the underlying principle between all of these worldviews, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, or, again, the Western uh, version of karma, is that, really, you determine the outcome for your life. That's the principle of it. You manifest into existence things into your life, whether it's good or bad, via your good or bad works. Now, what's interesting is that in all of this, it's detached from any god. They're, they're, whatever view their god is, or whatever they have in, uh, a perspective on who God is, God does not intervene in these, in these uh, cycles of karma or reincarnation unless you are a faithful worshiper, unless you do good works, and then maybe the god you worship will, will set you free from the cycle of reincarnation and, and karma and, and whatnot. Now, Obviously, just from that small intro, and I'm sure from what you already know, you should already, this should already give you ideas that it's not, this, this view of karma is not compatible with the biblical worldview. There's a lot of contradictions. But first of all, again, it's, it's rooted in pagan roots, in Hinduism. Its purpose is for reincarnation. The Bible does not teach reincarnation. And, 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 and furthermore, its view of God is deistic in, in the sense that God is far removed from creation. He's sort of that the, the idea of, you know, God put things into motion, but then he just takes a step back and just watches everything unfold. Not to mention this idea of karma is really at the, at the core of it is, is a works-based spirituality, a works-based salvation ideology. You do good to earn good, to merit good, to merit a, a better life. It's a works-based spirituality. So again, if anything, this goes to show us, church, at the very least, we should not be repeating the words of the world or, or, or repeating the vocabulary of the world. And even greater, we should not be thinking and believing like the world. Even if it seems like it's good intentions, a lot of these karma videos and whatnot is always talking about, see, this is why you need to do good in the world. Be good to other people. But again, the premise of it is based on the doctrines of demons. First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 2 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. The idea of karma is, 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 again, a godless, works-based doctrine of demons that abandons people to their, to their sin and suffering and grounds hope in the hands of weak-willed human beings. Yet, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, as we'll see from our passage this morning, 
and the rest of Scripture entrusts our suffering into the hands of a good and loving God. And we see this even right from the beginning of our passage. Let's start to unpack it for us. Look at verse 1 again with me. It says, as he, talking about Jesus here, passed by, he saw a man blind, a, a man blind from birth. The word saw there is harao, to behold, to see with the mind. It, we've talked about this before. It's the idea of spiritually seeing or perceiving, not just the, the, the person externally, but their heart, their, their, their inward self. And it's the same word used when talking about when Luke talks about in chapter Luke chapter 10 when he talks about the good Samaritan and he sees the man half dead on the road the Samaritan saw him and had compassion it's the same principle the same word used when Jesus saw the the the, the 4000 distressed and hungry it says Jesus saw them and had compassion the same sentiment when Jesus saw the widow in Luke chapter 7 whose son had just passed away he saw her and had compassion in Scripture, seeing always precedes an act of compassion from God. Even in the Old Testament, last week we talked about how Jesus claimed to be the great I Am from the, the, the statement or the name of God given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when, when God appeared in the burning bush. And in that story of the burning bush, why did God appear to Moses in the first place? Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 to 8 says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God saw the affliction, the suffering of his people, and then he acts. This is why karma is incompatible with a biblical worldview or even our, 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 our perspective of God because in, in, in Scripture, it says that God is present. God is present in our sufferings. Where karma dictates that your, your lot in life is a result of your past sins or your current sins, your failings, and, and, and that God is far removed from it. God is not responsible. And if you wanted God to save you, you had to do good stuff first, good deeds first, be religious first, then maybe He will ease your suffering. That's the that's that's view with karma. In stark contrast to that is the Bible tells us that God is wholly aware of our sufferings. Not just aware, but He sees it and feels compassion towards His people and He acts on that compassion to relieve His people of that suffering. The Bible speaks of a God that, that has kept our that has kept count of our tossings and turnings at night, that has put our tears in a bottle, that keeps a record of our sufferings. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6-7 says this, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Then Peter goes on to say in verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's who our God is. Not only is he present in our sufferings, and he doesn't leave us alone in our sufferings, he himself, he himself makes a way to restore us, to confirm, strengthen, and comfort us in our sufferings. 
See, here's the application for us this morning, brothers and sisters. Just as Jesus saw this blind man, just as he was walking by in Jerusalem that day and he saw this blind man, God sees you. He knows you. He is present through your suffering. Whatever trials that you are experiencing in this life, you are not alone because God is present. Jesus, who declared he is the, the great I am, the God of the Old Testament, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, who saw his people's suffering in those days, also sees you. Sees you. God is present. Not only that, not only that, but we also see in our passage that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Again, Jesus answered to his disciples' question. He says, uh, it was not, in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Understand what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. This man was preordained by God to be blind from the womb in order to display God's power and his glory through his suffering, through his difficulty. Again, what Jesus is doing here is that he's giving an alternative view on our suffering. Karma dictates that suffering is because of our sin. Just accept it. There's no hope for a better life in this world. You know, better luck next time kind of deal. It's why if you recall the story of the caste system in India that had to be abolished because the lowest, cla- the lowest caste, the untouchables, just had to accept their way of life. The conclusion was, well, maybe you were a murderer. Maybe you did something bad in your previous life. And therefore, this life, you're just an untouchable. You're the lowest caste. Therefore, just accept it and just leave it as is. The idea is that suffering is a punishment for that past life. And so you just simply accept it. That, that, that's all in karma. That's all suffering amounts to. It's just consequence. There's no hope. Yet in God's economy, suffering has the potential to to be used for God's glory and our good. If you recall the story of Joseph in in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, this man went through a lot, sold into slavery, accused of doing something wrong, stuck in prison, forgotten in prison, eventually elevated to be second in power in Egypt next, only next to the Pharaoh. And then he, as a result, he was able to save his people, the Israelite people, from famine. And all of that happened as a result of his brothers not liking him, right? Like if you think you have bad relatives, you know, look at Joseph's story. But at the end of that story, when he finally confronts his brothers about all of this, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19 to 20, it says... Joseph, Joseph, Joseph says to his brothers, Do not fear for am I in this place? Do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Yet, if he hadn't gone through prison, if he hadn't gone through that hardship, that suffering, if he hadn't experienced that. God wouldn't have been able to use him to save his people. All of that to say that 
the God of the Bible says that our suffering has purpose. It's not just a, a, a result of consequence or our sinfulness. There's purpose to our suffering. Here's the point, right? What Jesus is trying to communicate in our passage, again, though, though suffering can sometimes, and, and that's a reality of it, sometimes it is a result of our bad decisions, our bad choices because of sin in our life. Suffering also, find, also finds its source in God's sovereign plan to bring about His glory and our good in our lives. There's a plan and a purpose for it. Here, this is a key verse for us to memorize, and we should know by heart by now. Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. All things. That's, that's, that should be a fundamental verse in our, in, in our mind, in our, in our Christian vocabulary, in our Christian uh, understanding. It's, it's key to how we view suffering in this life, how we understand it, and why there should be no reason for us to stress or be anxious when suffering comes, when hardships come, because all things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purposes. That's sickness. That's job loss. That's the, the mortgage rate increases in Ontario, right, in Canada. You name it. However, however your suffering or your hardships look like, understand it is not without purpose. Understand that it's not meaningless. And oftentimes God uses our times of trials to refine us, to shape us, to shape our characters, to, to, to strengthen our faith. And, and back in 1 Peter, the apostle talks about how, First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what our suffering looks like in, in God's kingdom. It's, it causes us to be refined, more precious than gold in, in the fire. And I get it, right? Suffering is bad. Hardship is bad. No one likes to suffer. And it, it really is hard to see the final product when you're in the middle of the flame. And oftentimes, we, we, our desire is for escape. But refinement doesn't happen when we escape. It happens when we endure. Growth doesn't happen in times of comfort. It happens through discomfort. It's through endurance. It's uh, similar to, you know, if, if you're going to the gym, it's resistance training, right? Muscles don't grow when you're lifting weights that your body is accustomed to, has been conditioned to lift. It doesn't need to grow under those circumstances, but add a little more weight, add a little more resistance. You will experience the most growth when you endure the most resistance in your life. And oftentimes, I think, even when we're hearing this, we're thinking in terms of payment and reward, right? Okay, God, I'm going to pay this price, I'm going to endure this suffering, and expect this outcome. That job that I want, that car that I've always wanted, that relationship, that house I always wanted. 
I'm going I'm to suffer in you, and my expectation is this is my reward. You have to understand, brothers and sisters, when it comes to suffering for the Lord, it's never about what we get, but what we become. Romans 5, 3, Romans chapter 5, verse 3 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The Bible says that we become more like Christ through this refinement. It's about building our character. A character that reflects Christ's ability to endure hardships and trials, even sufferings. That is our hope through our sufferings and our hardships. That God is refining, refining in us a character that produces hope. Hope that our suffering was not meaningless. That it was not purposeless or just the consequence of our bad actions. The hope that God is sovereign and that we are in the hands of a sovereign God who is in control. And that he himself is working our suffering to something good and something for his glory. Let's go back to our passage here. So again, why, why, why karma is, is unbiblical or it is not compatible with the biblical worldview? First of all, God is present, right? He's not distant. He's not far off from our sufferings. Again, God is sovereign. He's in control. He uses our sufferings for his glory and our, and our good. Let's go to verse 4 of our passage. It says, this is Jesus continuing the conversation with his disciples. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus is talking about the need to finish what the Father has tasked him to do in, in his earthly ministry right before night comes, which is talking about his death. Um, and then he goes on to say in verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Uh, this, of course, is a callback to the great I am statement of Christ in chapter 8. And this also tells us that this probably took place right after the Feast of Booths and that, and, and, and that encounter in chapter 8 and 7 of the Gospel of John. It tells us that it's right after Jesus, again, declares that he is the, the light of the world, declares himself to be the great I am. And it, it connects here, he, he, he connects that identity of being the great I am and being the light of the world with this healing of this blind man. Because as, as you can probably surmise, right, we see via the light, we are unable to see because of the darkness, the lack of light. So Jesus being the light of the world allows people to see. It gives, it gives this illustration of Jesus' claim that he's bringing people out of spiritual blindness, which we'll see a lot of in the rest of chapter 9. And, it, and again, this is to declare once again that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, who is bringing illumination, who is bringing truth to darkened hearts and blind eyes. Now, having said this, we see in the next verses here, verse 6 to 7, Jesus heals this man. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the, with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. You ever wonder why Jesus spat on the ground, made mud, and, and that was the method in which 
uh, he healed this, this blind man. Right? That's like, why don't you just put your hands over this man and just say, hey, you know, you're, you're healed. It's kind of uh, a, a gross picture of spitting on the ground and making mud, but it's interesting because I think this is very intentional in him displaying his divinity. If you recall, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, God created man from where? The dust, the earth. What Jesus is doing here is he's making brand new eyes from mud and putting it into this guy's face, right? Putting this into this guy's eye. Again, this guy was born blind. So Jesus is not just healing him. He's sculpting new eyes just for him in this, in this miracle. And of course, it mentions the Pool of Siloam. This is another connection to the Feast of Booths. And if you recall, in that festival of the Jews, there's a water ritual that the Jews conducted there. They would draw water from the Pool of Siloam and, and offer that water up to be a, a drink offering to God at the end of the, that, that seven-day festivity. Now, in addition to that, in chapter 7, Jesus declares that he offers living waters. As, as the, 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 the priests, the temple priests, are drawing water out of this, this well, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the one who gives living waters. And so this miracle, again, is not, it's, it's connecting all the dots in this, this festivity of the Feast of Booths, of Jesus being the light of the world and the Pool of Siloam. He's still there in, in that context. Now, this miracle not only shows the power of God and the divinity of Christ, but I want us to also remember that, or even see, that it also shows God's grace in all of this. It shows God's grace in all of this. See, the last reason why karma is not compatible with the, the, the biblical worldview, the Christian worldview, is because God is gracious. God is gracious. See, the reason why the Jews believed in some form of karma, some principle of karma, or because or they believe that sin causes suffering is because they had some biblical grounds for it. In Numbers chapter 14, um, and we see this other, in other uh, books of the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, they said, um, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, on their children, to the third and fourth generation. Hence why the disciples ask, is it because his parents sinned that he's born blind? It's always interesting how the, how the Jews hyper-focus onto that last part of that passage, but completely miss the first part, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. The Jews were so preoccupied with God's wrath and their sin that they forgot that God was also slow to anger, that he was merciful. And the truth is, right, and the reality is God does punish sin. In Romans chapter 1, we see God's passive wrath against sinful man and against sin. And Paul talks about the consequences of sowing in to the flesh. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 to 8, he says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows into the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So there are consequences when we do good and we do bad. 
The difference between what the Bible says and, again, the idea of karma, of karma is that where, where karma says that all the good in this life is on us to make it happen, is because we have done good, and again, vice versa with the bad. The Bible says, no, all the good that we get from this life is from a good God. In addition to that, the Bible says all the good that we receive from this good God, we don't deserve. We don't deserve. See, this miracle demonstrates the grace of God because Jesus did not have to heal this blind man. Even though his blindness was not a result of sin, it did not mean that this man was, a, was not a sinner, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know the verse. So if Jesus had left him in his blindness, he would have been perfectly justified. That was, that was, that's what karma would have dictated. Leave him. He gets what he deserves. And the Bible says that we're all sinners. But God is gracious and merciful even to us sinners. Romans chapter 9, verse 15. Uh, it says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on, him, on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If you know the difference between grace and mercy, grace is giving to us what we don't deserve, what we've never earned. Mercy is withholding from us what we do deserve, and that is punishment, that is suffering. In our passage, Jesus gives sight to this man. That's God's grace. Because he didn't deserve it, he didn't do anything to deserve sight, to be able to see, yet at the same time we see Jesus not leaving him blind is mercy. Jesus not leaving this man in his, to suffer a blind life is mercy. See, again, in the philosophy of karma, sin automatically results in our suffering. We, we get what we deserve. Suffering is what we deserve. Yet, what the Bible teaches is that even where sin should result in our suffering, where suffering is the consequences of our, of our, of our crimes against God, or, and, and we even see the punishment of sin, which is death, the wrath of God and hell, we also see a God who is slow to anger, who is merciful and kind, who is compassionate and loving, and who intervenes, steps in to save us from the punishment, the consequences of sin. He's not only present in seeing us in our suffering, not only sovereign and uses our suffering to, to, to refine us and has a plan for our hardships, but he's also gracious. He actively gives us what we don't deserve. He withholds from us what we do deserve. And, and here's, here's a tie-in for us. Listen, if you're going through hardships in life, if you're suffering through this season of life, the plan isn't to try to do good things so that good things would happen to you and so that you can be like to God, see God, I'm going to church again and like, I'm giving to the poor and I'm doing these good things for you. Make my life better. That's not the plan. The plan is to throw yourself at the mercies of God. 
The, the plan is to, to humble yourself before the mercies of God. Say, God, I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve this life. I don't deserve the good that I have. Have mercy on me. Have faith in, the, that the, in, in God's character of love. He delights in the repentance of, of sinners. He, 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 he forgives those who sincerely seek Him. He delights in redeeming and saving His people from suffering. Have faith in that. Rely on that. God redeems His people from suffering. That is, a, that is what we see in Scripture. And sometimes the redemption either looks like escape or endurance. Escape, God delivers us from whatever trial we're going through. We see that throughout Scripture. God delivers David from his enemies. And he can deliver you too from whatever suffering or hardship you're experiencing. But we have to also understand that that deliverance, that escape, doesn't always look like how we expect it to be. I've seen many believers suffering from sickness and illness, and the way that God relieves them of that, the way of escape that God gives to them is through death. That escape from God doesn't always look like how we expect it to be. And other times, God, God's redemption, God's freedom from suffering for us is through endurance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8-10, to it says... This is Paul talking about the thorn in his side and the suffering that he was going through. And though he requested from God himself to, to relieve him of that hardship, the reply that he got back is not what we expect. Jesus tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul's conclusion is, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul. Paul's redemption, Paul's, Paul's contentment through his suffering was in an endurance was enduring it all, because as he endured, he received more grace from God. But again, whether escape or endurance, it's all from God's grace. Depend on his grace. Depend on his mercy. Again, you know, sometimes I, this is even from personal experience, when the weight of my own sin and my own guilt and shame comes crashing down on me, the natural inclination is to go do good things. Try to do good works. And I may not believe in karma, but that's what I'm trying to, trying to produce in my life. Right? I'm doing good things, God. Please make good things happen in my life. Or I'm doing good things to make up for my bad things. Hoping that it would balance out or whatever. But at the end of the day, our only hope and plea is not at all in our good works, not in any title that we have, not in any intention that we have. Our only plea and hope is in the mercies of God. That God is good, that He is loving and gracious. 
Unlike, again, this idea of karma where only good happens because you've done good. The good that happens in our life is because God is good. And he desires to show goodness to his people. Ultimately, what karma boils down to is, again, similar to what we've been talking about, similar to other world religions, it's a works-based religion. Do good works, you are saved from suffering, or you're saved from punishment in the next life. But the reality is, if, if karma was real, all of us would be labeled as untouchables. We'd be the lowest caste, every single one of us. Because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says even further in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's us. And and if karma were real, we get what we deserve. We are dead in our sin. The only thing that we are destined for is hell. Punishment from God. Because this is how we live. This is how we walked. The passage continues. It says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may The goodness that we have received, the grace that we have received, is not because we have done anything good to merit it. Because God is good. Because he's rich in mercy and love. Because he is with his people. He is present in our life. The only escape from suffering, the only escape from hardships we find, truly find in this life, is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus Christ. time as we close, I want to invite you, if you have yet to put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in God's plan for salvation, in God's plan for redemption for us, so that we would be free from sin, be free from hell, I invite you to do so today. God has made a way so that you could experience his grace and his love, not just in this life, for all of eternity. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came, he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave so that as, as, a, as, a, as a seal, as a promise that we too would one day rise from the grave. And I invite you, if you have yet to do that, put your faith in Christ today. And believers, brothers and sisters, if you are going through hardships, if you are going through trials in this season, remember that our loving God is present. He sees what you're going through. He sees and knows what you're going through, and he is actively working to bring comfort and relief. 
Remember that God is sovereign. He is in control and he's using even your, your trials, your hardships to refine you, to bring about his glory through your hardships, and to, which is ultimately your good. And remember at the end of the day that our God is gracious. We can count on him. We can count on his love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that God, despite our doubts and fears, despite the many times where we fall short, that you are a God of mercy and grace. The Lord, you see our hardships in this life, the trials that we are, we are currently experiencing, and you are present in them. I pray, O oh God, for the brother or the sister today who is going through hardship. And Lord, they would feel your hand of comfort on their lives today. That they would come to know of your mercies. And though, God, if your plan is not to relieve them from that suffering, that, God, you would help them endure. But Lord, you remind them of your grace to strengthen them through the hardships, your grace that, that, that is refining them and cultivating a character in them. Lord, I pray for your people this morning that you'd pour out grace upon grace on their lives. That they would be reminded and know, O oh God, of your goodness, of your love towards them. I pray, O oh God, for the heart that is listening to your Holy Spirit right now who has, who has yet to put their faith and trust in you. I pray, O oh God, that you impress on their hearts your plan of salvation for them, your love for them, demonstrated at the cross of Jesus Christ. I pray that today would be a day of salvation, of life change for that they would come to truly know of your grace, a grace that is so undeserved, a grace that is not based on our good merits or our good deeds, but wholly dependent on your love and your mercy for us. So Lord, we commit our lives to you, knowing that our lives are in the hands of a good and sovereign God the God who has declared an end from the beginning, the God who never changes. And we thank you, O oh God, because we know that you are the one who goes before us. We pray these things all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content.
Until next time, stay blessed.